Hello everyone and welcome to a conversation this afternoon on rethinking diet, weight and health and health policy in and after the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. This is a conversation between me and Susan Jebb and it's part of a series that we're running at the Oxford Martin School on building back better, the lessons and opportunities from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, my name is Charles Godfrey. I'm the director of the Oxford Martin School. And before I introduce Susan, can I encourage everyone who's watching the talk live to consider asking a question? If you look down at the bottom of your screen, the bottom right, you'll see a button you can press there which says ask a question. And not only can you ask a question, you can vote on other people's questions. And after we've chatted for 35 or 40 minutes, I'll be going to those questions. And it's really helpful for me to see which of the questions that have many votes and people are keen uh, that they are answered. Um, I, I would say that the, the title of the discussion is around uh, obesity policy. So um, we are really keen on questions around that rather than questions on what, what should I have for supper tomorrow or what is the best diet and things. So Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Susan, uh, Susan Jebb is Professor of Diet and Population Health at the Nuffield Department of Primary Care, Primary Care Health Sciences here in Oxford. Uh, Susan came to Oxford in 2013 and before that was a programme leader at the MRC Human Nutrition Research Unit in Cambridge. Uh, Susan, but before we start our conversation, might I ask you to tell us a little bit about your background and what's the fascinating research going on in your group at the moment. Hello, Charles. Uh, really nice to join you this evening. I'm sorry it's not in person, but this is not a bad substitute. Um, so uh, I'm a nutrition scientist by, by background, and I guess my early work was very much almost as a physiologist, and I was interested in how in energy metabolism and, and body weight control. And over time, that drifted into more of an interest in appetite and what we eat, and that went from being about uh, physiology, really, into much more of the behavioural science of, of why people eat what they eat. And it was about that time I, I moved to Oxford. And what I find now is trying to um, consider diet that, uh, yes, there's some biological sciences in there. There's certainly a lot of behavioural science. But I find myself um, doing more social science and, and the sociology of food. And uh, of course, there's a hefty dose of, of uh, well, it's a bit of economics and uh, a certain amount of politics in that as well. In, in my team, I guess what we're really interested in is um, how diet impacts on health, but even more importantly, how do you encourage, support, motivate, or enable people to have a healthy diet um, because we've got a good sense of what a healthy diet is but we actually are really struggling to bring about um, change at a population level and so we try to both develop and to test interventions which either are about um, supporting individuals uh, to make different choices but increasingly importantly actually how do you change uh, the environment so that people just naturally end up with a healthier diet um, but uh, and, and that's mostly focused in relation to obesity but we're also interested in people eating more sustainably as well and um, you're an academic who's had a long-term interest in policy and way before I met you I sort of knew you because of your work on the UK government's foresight uh, project on obesity um, you were uh, you chaired the 
uh, industry responsibility deal. Mm -hmm. You've been seconded to DH. How did you get into policy? And is it is it still a large part of your work? Uh, that's interesting. I mean, I, I very much see myself as, as an academic, but actually, I really, really enjoy the work that I've done with policymakers. And for me, that combination has been of just um, energizing and exciting. And I think the more work I do in policy, the more that impacts on the type of research we do, and is obviously uh, a real opportunity to translate the research we do into policy. So I love working at that, um, at that interface. I, I think it's partly because I've always been very focused on quite applied research. I don't think I have the, the sort of long-term patience of the discovery scientists, you know, who are working on something which in 20 years' time is going to be life-changing. Um, I guess I'm very focused on the here and now. And, uh, you know, my team are familiar with me saying, you know, what do we need to know as opposed to what, you know, might it be interesting to know? Hopefully those two coincide. But um, I often think... You know, if we want to to change the, the food system, if we want policymakers to take action, um, what did what what evidence do they need in order to be able to do that? And that very much drives our, our research. So the foresight report was probably the first substantive thing I did with with policymakers. Goodness only knows why they came to ask me to help with that, but anyway, they did, and and I'm I'm very pleased. And I spent two years working really closely with the Foresight team, who are brilliant because what you've got is a very science-focused group working at the heart of government. And so it was a fantastic introduction for me. Um, and on the back of that, I was asked by the Department of Health um, if I'd chair a, a new expert advisory group on obesity to really support the department as they tried to implement um, some of the work that, that Foresight had suggested. Um, so I did that probably for, you know, uh, probably eight or nine years, um, working about a day a week um, with, with uh, the policy teams. I've not done that for a while, um, but I continue to, to sit on various committees um, in, a, in a slightly more ad hoc relationship. But nonetheless, I would say that interest in how science in general is translated into policy um, is something that I think well, I'm very interested in and I think is tremendously important. If we want our work to have impact, we really need to understand that translational process to understand the questions that policymakers have. And, and it certainly, you know, really reminded me that uh, just doing a randomised control trial, even if it is the most beautiful, perfect randomised control trial that gets into a big medical journal, you know, that just isn't enough of policymakers, they want to understand about the acceptability, they want to understand about the cost effectiveness of policies, they want to understand how acceptable this policy would be to the public. And unless we as researchers can provide them with that much more rounded evidence base, then it's unlikely that our research is going to have the traction that we want it to. Susan, we're going to be talking about how the pandemic is changing policy around obesity. But could you sort of tee us up for that discussion by just summarising why obesity is such a public health issue and the degree to which um, its importance has changed over the decades? 
Well, obesity is 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 not new. I'm afraid um, people have in the UK and, and similar countries have been gaining weight steadily, you know, decade on decade for well, probably as long as we've been been recording it. So we're now in a position where one in four people in adults in the UK are um, identified as being um, a as living with obesity. Um, and if we think about children, there's a slightly different definition, but we've got one in 10 children starting school. So one in 10 four-year-olds who are already identified as living with obesity. Um, and that, you know, is, is just extraordinary. And I think it's that change in childhood obesity which I've really seen over my career. You know, when I was at school, actually, I look back at old school photographs and everybody looks quite scrawny. Um, and it's children just have a very different shape. The whole distribution of weight has, has shifted. So people are much heavier. Um, and the second thing is that we increasingly recognize that that excess weight um, leads to ill health. So particularly uh, diabetes, and somewhere around 90% of cases of type 2 diabetes are attributable to obesity. Um, it increases uh, the risk of heart disease. It's directly linked to about 12 different kinds of cancer. And then you've got the mechanical problems like um, joint problems, knee replacements, much more likely uh, for people who are overweight. So there's, you know, obesity affects almost every organ system of the body. Um, and it, it's one of those conditions that if only we could tackle obesity, then actually we would do so much to prevent um, ill health. And it, and it is ill health that really matters. I mean, being over, seriously overweight increases the risk of premature death, but that affects quite modest. What it does instead is really hamper people's quality of life because they're living with chronic conditions which require medications, visits to hospital and just generally impair their life. I know we've got quite a few people who are viewing from outside the United Kingdom and we are going to be largely talking about UK policy and in fact English policy and obesity. But I think many of the problems we face in the in England, the UK are similar to throughout the world. So the policy issues we are facing are the same. And I, I've got to, sorry, Susan. Um, I think, you know, UK, Europe, North America, Australia, very, very similar. What we're seeing in, in some other countries is that obesity is developing very, very rapidly. Um, and their food systems are perhaps slightly different. So they're, they're structured rather differently. So um, some of the policies might be different in, in, in other countries, but, but there's a lot of crossover. And thinking about sort of English obesity strategy over the last 10 years or so, uh, am I right that government finds it easier to talk about childhood obesity and harder to talk about mm -hmm. obesity in adults? Um, it certainly looks like that. So um, when we published the uh, Foresight report, that was at a time when government had already announced a, um, a target to reduce the prevalence of obesity in children. And one of the points we made in that report was that, of course, tackling obesity in children matters but there's a huge problem of adult obesity already. And that actually, if we're serious, we need to take a whole population approach. To be honest, that wasn't really adopted. And so the strategy that came out was very, remained very focused on children. And that has continued until I would say this summer, 
and we saw the new plan announced by the, the Prime Minister, which I think for the first time overtly acknowledged that actually um, adults are suffering ill health as a direct consequence of excess weight. And so the new plan um, includes, yes, whole population strategies to try to help, help everybody um, maintain a healthy weight, um, but also specific policies about treating um, obesity. So offering support to people who've already got a weight problem in order to help them uh, uh, tackle that condition. I mean, perhaps just one question before we come on to the new strategy. And um, that was the um, sugary drink um, intervention of about, I think it's about five, five years ago now. Did you see that as a as a major change in government being willing to intervene in uh, in our diets in a way we hadn't seen before? You you, uh, you might just explain because you'd explain it better than me what the sugary tax levy was. So you're absolutely right. This was a really uh, I think you know a, a, a well, quite remarkable intervention. Remarkable because um, academics have been talking about the potential value of, uh, of a tax on, on sugary drinks. Um, uh, sugary drinks because they add calories to the diet, but really of no nutritional value whatsoever. And so they would be an obvious thing that one might want to discourage consumption of. So um, lots of work have been done, particularly actually by colleagues here in Oxford, uh, Mike Rayner and Pete Scarborough, published a lot of the underpinning work, which made the case that uh, taxing sugary drinks would be a good thing to do. But government had never really shown that much interest in it. Um, and then suddenly a budget came round and, uh, you know, this, this soft drink industry levy was announced. It was actually quite a clever policy because rather than making this a direct sales tax, um, they actually put the, the burden on business. So it was a levy on the industry. And that levy was proportional, essentially, to the amount of sugar that they were selling in, in soft drinks. And the reason for doing it like that was essentially to incentivize business to reformulate their product and reduce the amount of sugar. And the reason why, that, why that's a clever idea is because that means that everybody benefits. If you, if you take down the sugar content of drinks, everybody um, uh, benefits from that without actually requiring consumers to change their behavior. Um, now, in addition, of course, companies have passed on some of that levy onto consumers. So the price of sugary drinks has gone up and that's had a small effect on consumer behavior as well. But what I think it's shown, firstly, it's been tremendously effective. Um, you know, it's reduced uh, uh, the sugar content of drinks by, I think, about 30 percent. Mm. Um, so it's, it, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been fantastically effective in in stimulating reformulation. But it's also shown us it's easier to change products than it is to change people, because despite all of the news that sugar is bad for your health and that sugary drinks are a particular concern. You know, there truly can't be anybody in the country that doesn't know that. Actually, the changes in consumer behavior account for a very small part of the reduction that we've seen over time. You mentioned Pete Scarborough, and in fact, uh, he spoke in a different series of talks at the Oxford Martin School uh, organizers and we've put a link to the recording of his talk so if there's anyone who's watching who's interested in hearing more about Pete's analysis of the sugar tax have a look at that 
They've done some, the good thing is they've done some, not only did they help sort of develop it, but they've done some fantastic evaluation to really look how this is impacting and how it's really changed the, the whole system. So it's, it's a, a very neat piece of work. So, so Susan, we come to the pandemic and I guess um, March, April, it suddenly became apparent that being overweight and obese um, really quite dramatically increased your risk of severe illness from COVID. We had the curious um, occurrence that our prime minister um, got COVID, was seriously ill, and said one of the reasons that he it was highly likely he was ill was that he self-identified himself. I think he used the the, uh, uh, the phrase borderline uh, borderline obese. Um, when were you aware that government was suddenly taking obesity? um really quite seriously certainly looking from the outside it appeared as if there was this this sudden real increase in policy attention given to the issue Did, as someone who's watched this for many years were you surprised by suddenly how obesity rocketed up the agenda oh absolutely uh, i mean firstly it shot up the agenda and secondly we've i don't think ever had a prime minister who was so personally interested, invested and engaged in, in the issue, certainly not, not during my career. Um, so I think a number of things have, have all come together. So the first is, as you say, there's this striking association between uh, excess weight and the risk of COVID complications. That's things like admission to intensive care. So for people who are the most seriously overweight, you're talking about you know, more than a, a fourfold increased chance of having uh, of ending up in intensive care the chances of death are less strongly associated with covid and that but that's because age is such an important factor you know the average age of death from covid related illness is, is over 80 and mostly that's not where obesity lies but in terms of complications it's very clear the mechanism for that is poorly understood, but that's a conversation for another another day. So that was the first thing. This was a risk factor, and it was a modifiable risk factor. You know, there's nothing any of us can do about our age, um, so we're stuck with that. But 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 weight was something perhaps that was modifiable. Second, as you say, the prime minister himself um, affected. Who knows at an individual level what the what the reasons are for for the severity of illness, but certainly weight didn't help. Um, and, and so he suddenly became aware that this was part of the COVID problem and I think started looking into obesity and ill health more generally. And the fact is that there are 57,000 um, avoidable deaths every year caused by excess weight alone, even before we had COVID. So COVID may be what's put it on the map, but actually the even bigger reason for tackling it is this other burden of ill health that's affecting the NHS. So simply by reducing the pressure on the NHS from those other conditions, you know, would be a bonus. And the third thing was that I think the public at large suddenly realised that their weight was not as controllable as they thought. So we know that many people struggled with their weight over many years, but I think during lockdown, when we were all thrown out of our usual routines, lots of people experienced difficulties managing their weight. And I was constantly being told by friends how much weight they'd put on during uh, lockdown. People perhaps, you know, not traveling to work, 
um, not being able to go to the gym. And, is, and is there data on that yet? Is Sorry. there data on that yet? Do we do we actually know if? Uh... We don't. Uh, we don't absolutely. We we definitely know food purchasing habits have changed mm -hmm. and. You know, if you look at the supermarket sales data, sales of um, alcohol have shot up, confectionery have shot up. Um, but of course, we're eating out less, so it's a little yeah. bit difficult to absolutely nail that. Um, I think that there will be some data which will come out on weight, um, things like the National Diabetes Prevention Programme, which has been running before and ongoing. We can look at uh, people's weight when they enter into that programme, and that will give us some sense of what's going on. My clinician colleagues tell me that people who they see regularly in their clinics are coming back significantly heavier than they were six or nine months ago. So I think people suddenly started to realize that, oh, actually, you know, I need to do something about my weight. I need to take action. And they started to realize that the food environment, even just in their home, was beginning to affect their, their weight. And so all of these things came together and suddenly government... I think realized that lots of people wanted help to manage their weight and that actually they government could step in to provide some of that support both to help people lose weight but to remove some of those factors which were encouraging overeating like food advertising for example um, and also I think you know in this context of so much state intervention suddenly actually intervening in the markets a little bit to stop them selling uh, you know, quite so much unhealthy food felt like a more publicly acceptable thing to do than previously. So I think it was a, a real window of opportunity when people were looking to kind of reset their lifestyle. So, so might there be a danger of a backlash? So as we come out of the pandemic or as we get intolerant of continued lockdowns and restrictions, that that sort of legitimacy for state intervention that we saw six months ago might become less and might even reverse and there might be a reaction against state intervening? Um, it's possible, although many of the things I think will just uh, become part of, of the new normal. So mm -hmm. if we take the restrictions on food advertising that have, have been proposed. You know, I very much doubt that anybody at the end of an evening, you know, goes to bed thinking, oh, goodness me, there weren't nearly enough adverts for food on the television tonight. So, you know, once they're not there, that will be fine. They're just not there. And there won't be that prompt for people to eat. I find it highly unlikely that people will be, um, you know, petitioning to bring the food adverts back. It's a bit like when we banned smoking in public places. Even people who were kind of a bit indifferent to it, actually, once it had happened, said, oh, my goodness, this is actually you know, really nice. This is an improve the environment. So I think it will be okay. Um, I hope it will be. And, and so what happened, if I have the chronology right, is that uh, the government produced a strategy, I think it was in July, um, and presumably it was done so quickly, it was sort of building on all the work you and others had done beforehand. Um, and perhaps we could talk a little bit about some of the elements of that strategy. And I know the first is something that's very dear to your heart because it's it, it's it's an area that you've researched. And this is the role of GPs and primary care doctors in um, in helping people lose weight. M might you say what the main strategies are there? And also tell us a bit about your work, which has shown that this actually works in terms of people losing weight and in saving the country money. 
Okay. Um, yeah, and this is a really interesting bit of the strategy because I think the Prime Minister had come into this whole area because of concern about his own weight, realising that he uh, needed to lose some weight or that his health would be better for that, um, suddenly became interested in treatment. And the interesting thing about treating obesity is we have got effective interventions, but they're not being deployed at scale in the NHS. And we've been doing a lot of work on this. We've been able to show that um, we can train doctors to make uh, what we call opportunist, opportunistic interventions in primary care. And, and so if I can interrupt, we're talking, we're not talking here about sort of radical interventions like surgery. No, we're, no, no. we're talking about uh, very um, uh, modest interventions, but essentially doctors raising the issue with patients about their weight and importantly, offering them access to um, support to help them lose weight. And what we showed is that uh, it's possible to do that, that patients generally find that very, very acceptable. And indeed, about 40% of people who had never contemplated joining a weight management program previously did so, and that a year later, they had, uh, had lost about two and a half kilos. So we know that we can actually embed this in the system. And so we were able to take that evidence, uh, present that to government, and that's now been adopted as part of the NHS plan, whereby everybody who, uh, who is living with obesity will be offered uh, support to lose weight from early next year. Now, the wording of that's really important because this is offering support. It's offering people help for a condition that they have. There's no compulsion. There's no conditionality on this. It's simply the offer of support. But all of the uh, work that's been done with the public tells us that in general, people welcome that, uh, that help. The second thing that is in the plan is recognise is some work that NHS England were already um, doing, uh, which is about identifying people who are at high risk of developing diabetes and offering them more specific support. So a slightly more intensive programme that's going to be expanded. Um, and again, another thing that NHS England... Sorry, Susan, that, that will be specifically advice on so what's been uh, that's referral to um, uh, weight management programs which are held over a year, which provide people with ongoing support, helping them to change their diet, become more physically active, with a specific focus on reducing their risk of diabetes. Um, and then the third element is something, again, that NHS England were already planning to do, but which builds directly on our research, is to offer something called a total diet replacement program for people who already have diabetes. The interesting thing about this is that we know that people um, who've been fairly recently diagnosed with diabetes who are offered this program actually have an almost one in two chance of being in remission from their diabetes a year later. So um, typically people lose about 10 kilos. Um, so what we have is a suite of interventions of increasing intensity, which can be tailored to people's needs and to their level of risk. Um, but the key thing is that the obesity plan marks a real step change in actually embedding support for weight loss into NHS systems. And that's, you know, I think, I hope we will look back and see this as a, as a defining moment. So in the same way that, that nowadays doctors routinely talk to people who smoke 
about, about stopping smoking and offer support to help them to do that. I hope that what we'll see is weight management becoming embedded in routine NHS care so that everybody who wants help to lose weight can get support from the NHS because our research and other people shows really clearly that people do better with support from the health service than they do if they're trying to manage weight on their own. So, so Susan, this is probably a naive question, but it seems such an obvious thing to do. And you mentioned smoking and we, we, we have an example of where smoking has worked. Why has it been so hard to bring this in? Oh, a whole raft of, of reasons. I, I gave a talk actually at the Oxford Martin oh, probably a year ago now, which is probably also still in your archive, where, where we talked a little bit more about it. Um, mm. I mean, I think that there's been a concern that interventions weren't effective, that people wouldn't want it, and a worry about weight regain. And, you know, what we've shown is there are effective interventions. Uh, people do better with support. Weight regain is a persistent problem but it's much, much slower than people imagine. And also there are some lasting metabolic benefits. So I think that we um, are increasingly recognizing that with a condition like obesity, which is a chronic relapsing condition, potentially people are going to need intermittent bouts of treatment in order to manage that. Um, and, and that it's not, it's not failure if, if your weight goes back on again. It's, it's an unfortunate consequence of the fact that the, you know, we're all struggling to manage our weight. And, and people who've been overweight in the past have probably got an underlying biological susceptibility. So for them, it's going to be extra hard. Mm. So, you know, that's another good reason why, yes, these new treatment programs are tremendously important. But what's good about this strategy is it recognised that whilst we need to help people lose weight, we also need to put in place other policies which are going to help everybody to avoid putting weight on in the first place or, or to avoid regaining it after they successfully lost weight. So, so there's one view which in its extreme form says that actually a problem of obesity is a problem of lack of information. So we're all rational individuals we should all make the optimal decisions about our weight going ahead and the issue is we don't have enough information about it and so we should have traffic lights and detailed calorie information and the obesity plan if i have it right then um talks about improving the information available for the consumer i think in particular in having calorie labeling in restaurant menus and things like that so i guess my question for you is Surely this can't be bad, but what evidence is there that consumers make use of evidence such as this in making decisions about their diets? And how important do you see this strand of obesity of helping people lose weight? Um, so I think giving people uh, information is important. Um, you know, we, uh, if, if people broadly have a sense of what a healthy diet is. They know fruit and veg are good and they know biscuits and cakes are bad. Um, when it comes down to it though, if you want people to choose between two different kinds of pizza or something, you know, actually they need to know what's, what's in their food. So I think it's hard to argue that labeling isn't a good thing. You know, if you, if you want to make an informed choice, you need the information to do that. So I am a supporter of it. However, I do not think we should overestimate the effect it's going to have. Um, you know, we've done systematic reviews which have looked at the evidence. The evidence isn't brilliant, but that it, you know, 
it all points in the direction of it having a modest effect. And it's probably modest because actually only a small proportion of people notice or use the information. So yes, it's a piece of the jigsaw, but it's probably a rather modest piece. And certainly on its own, it's not going to do a lot. But what it might do is in addition to changing consumer behavior, it might actually change industry behavior a little bit as well, because companies start looking at the calories on their menu and maybe just reflecting a little bit that, you know, 1200 calories for a meal for one is, you know, maybe a little bit too high. So it might actually encourage a bit of reformulation of the menu, but it's, it's one small piece in a much, much bigger jigsaw. So I was going to ask you if you were a nudger, but you, you, I think you may have answered it that you're a nudger when it comes to industry rather than the consumer. You perhaps might explain what nudge means in this context. Well, I, I certainly am, am a nudger, yes, of industry and a nudger of government into taking more taking more action. Um, th this term nudge in, in the obesity context has really come about from the from the Thaler and Sunstein book uh, Nudge, so behavioural economics or what some people would describe as uh, behavioural science, um, and the idea that you know mostly we don't make terribly rational conscious thoughtful choices about what to eat we just do the take the easy option we sort of take the default we choose food quite automatically and so if you um, rearrange the the sort of uh, what's sometimes called the micro environment or, or also the, the choice architecture then actually people will make a different choice perfectly freely perfectly happily just because it's become the easier choice. So, um, you know, a, a good example would be, um, you know, do you offer people um, uh, a sugary drink and you have to actively opt into having the, the low calorie drink or do you start with a low calorie drink and, and, and allow people to opt into the higher calorie one? Um, so there are lots of nudges which have been shown to work, particularly in, in things like supermarkets. If you take um, confectionery off the end of an aisle, you can still buy it elsewhere in the store, but you take it off the end of an aisle, people buy a lot less confectionery. Um, so, you know, nudges do work, but there's a limit. And there's a limit because we cannot realistically expect to be able to nudge every single decision-making moment in people's lives. And so there's a place for them, but we've also got to come up a level and think at a much more system level of how do we change the, the broader food system or what people sometimes call the food environment. Uh, there's, uh, I mean, moving on to the food environment, there's that rather vivid phrase that uh, people use, the obesogenic landscape, mm. that today we live in the landscape where we are bombarded by posters for foods um, high in, uh, in salt, sugar and, and fat, uh, our television is many adverts and especially in low income areas, you can walk down a street and it's one fast food outlet after an, uh, after another. To what degree did the obesity strategy um, address issues around the obesogenic landscape and did it well, go far enough? It's definitely try. You're absolutely you're absolutely right. This is a huge, huge issue. I mean, you know, you might say that obesity is a function of you know abundance, convenience, and choice. Uh, you know, and all of these things have come together. Just sheer availability of food. It's absolutely everywhere. You know, it's not just in grocery stores. It's in almost every shop you go into. Um, you can buy a three course meal in a petrol station. You know, it, it, food is just 
everywhere, um, vending machines, and if it's not the actual product, it's an advert for it. Um, and, and that we do think is, is fueling overconsumption because it makes food more available um, pretty well any time of day you want it. Um, but it, we're also being constantly prompted and nudged, if you like, into eating or primed. Because you see an advert for food, and even if you weren't actually hungry, you start thinking, well, actually, you know, I would quite fancy a biscuit with my cup of coffee. We don't even realize it's happening, but there's really good experimental data which shows us these effects and shows how um, seeing food adverts uh, nudges people into, into over-consuming. So what the obesity plan did this time around was, was take on two particular areas. Um, one was around advertising, both on television and online. And of course, online is increasingly important because uh, people are watching less television and, and more online viewing to um, control advertising of, of foods high in fat, sugar and salt. Um, and the second was around um, in-store promotions. So this is sort of at the interface of those nudge type interventions, uh, but it um, committed to introducing mandatory controls on what are called um, location-based promotions, things like the end of the aisle, um, yeah. or on volume-based promotions. So that's things like multi-buys or buy one, get one free, which effectively encourages to over-purchase. And once you've over-purchased, um, all the evidence says that you'll go on to over-consume. And so I think it's really important that, that those are in the plan as well, because recognize that the food industry phenomenally successful business incredibly important bit of our economy but it has tended to grow on the basis of selling more calories and that is simply unsustainable for our health and that actually that business model has got to change we've got to get people away from this emphasis on volume and actually put it onto a higher quality food so um I'm going to go to questions in a second. And just before I do that, um, um, let's suppose that you're given the choice of, of um, you've been made um, obesity SAR or whatever an equivalent, um, uh, an equivalent uh, position is. And you're asked, what are the three most important things the government should do in addition to what it has done at the moment? What would, what would be the things that you would suggest okay i mean i take your point about in addition but i think that although there are commitments in the plan they've absolutely got to be seen through and so these these controls on promotions and on advertising absolutely need to be introduced and we need to make sure that they're comprehensive um, so for example it's one thing to stop um, grocery stores selling uh, sweets on the checkout but let's also make sure we stop all the other stores doing that as well so we need really to, to enact what, what's already in those plans the other thing I, I mean one area that I'm really concerned about at the moment is confectionery so sales of confectionery are not decreasing. In fact, there's quite a bit of evidence that during lockdown and through the pandemic, it's actually increased. Um, and, you know, these are foods which really, again, bring no nutritional benefits. And I think we need a focus on confectionery in the same way that we had on sugary drinks, where we identified this was a 
specific category which we had to take particular policy action and I think confectionery really really needs some attention um, and then the other thing that I would do I think is to really recognize that if we want to prevent obesity and we want people it's about people having a healthy diet and that healthy diet will be beneficial for a whole range of other outcomes as well and that what we need is a more comprehensive food policy yes obesity is the kind of lightning rod at the moment that's what's drawing all the attention but you know it's just a, a symbol of what's wrong with our food system and so i think we need a much more integrated food policy and that has to be good for health across the board but it also needs to pick up uh, issues of environmental sustainability of our food system too and so although that's not one specific policy i think we need an integrated yeah. food policy because otherwise we'll be doing this a little bit piecemeal at the end of the day that's not going to be the most efficient thing to do that's really interesting. I'm going to go to some questions now. And the question that has most votes is from Francis Rubin, and it's in two parts. And I, I'm going to ask both parts, but one after the other. And the first is around issues of corporate interest. And I guess the private sector makes food, uh, makes money by um, adding value up the, uh, up the value chain. And as you mentioned, one of the ways they do this is by making food more attractive, which is more sugary and salty. So, um, is it possible for the private sector to make money by by um, by marketing healthy foods or will it inevitably come down to government to have to intervene either fiscally or regulatory? Oh, it's absolutely possible. You know, the great advantage that the food industry have is that we all need to continue eating. Mm. Um, this is not an industry that we're trying to get rid of. It's an industry that we really value. But it's about helping them and incentivizing them to change the types of foods that they're providing. And so it's perfectly possible to add value to um, healthy foods as well. And we've seen a little bit of this happening. So, you know, the, the rise in kind of convenience meals, but where there's a, a little bit you know, made from fresher ingredients, which people kind of assemble for themselves. A meal kit. In the, in the microwave, for example. Mm. Quite, um, but, you know, there's real opportunities for innovation with healthier snacks. Uh, so the food industry definitely can make money out of selling um, healthy food. Um, that will be easier for some companies that have got, got a very broad portfolio. Um, it will be harder for others. Um, but I think that a mix of things need to happen. Once consumers start buying healthier things, then industry will jump to provide it. Um, and then you'll get a sort of virtuous circle. But to get that started, I think we probably need policies which incentivize industry to make that change because it's expecting too much for consumers to have to entirely you know, yeah. drag the industry to these healthier products. We need industry to move. That probably needs government incentives. And it certainly needs government to ensure that there's a level playing field. One of the reasons why I'm so keen that we have mandatory controls to restrict unhealthy promotions is so that the companies who are trying to do the right thing don't get penalised. Francis also asks, um, and I'll paraphrase the question slightly, about food literacy. How important do you think it is that our children should be better educated, both about the health and, well, environmental uh, consequences of consuming different types of food, as well as the sort of traditional, uh, the skills of preparing food and preparing vegetables in particular. 
are we missing that in the curriculum at the moment? Well, of course it's important, um, uh, but it is absolutely education, I think, by learning and education by exposure and by role modelling uh, rather than rote learning. Um, so it's important that the food children have access to and are provided with, particularly in schools, is, is healthy. Um, and of course, we want to see more of that kind of provision at home. That is really tricky to make that to make that happen. But I, of course, it matters. Um, you know, we often say that it is possible to eat healthily um, relatively cheaply, but to do so requires quite a lot of cooking skills, uh, requires quite a bit of time often as well. So it's definitely part of the overall mix. But I think, you know, we need to be careful not to overemphasize it, it, or it's not the only thing, perhaps what I should say, you know, there are very few um, children, certainly by the time they're at secondary school, they don't have a pretty good idea that broccoli is good for you and that chocolate is not. Um, so this isn't just a question of, if you like, basic education. But yes, skills matter. Um, but it's much more important is about role modelling healthy food. Mm -hmm grow up enjoying it if they've never experienced good delicious healthy food it's not surprising they find that a bit alien and don't want to try it so paul calvert asked a question uh, about what he calls the the elephant in the surgery and you've addressed some of them when you were talking about how primary care doctors and gps can can give advice but i think the broader issue he raises it's just it, it seems to be much harder to persuade governments to invest in prevention rather than cure and paul says shouldn't the shouldn't the doctors be giving us much more lifestyle advice um or should we be getting this through other health and welfare uh, health and well-being uh community initiatives it's not just about advice i mean as, as i sort of i guess said many times over the last uh, half hour or so people know essentially the elements of a healthy diet and they know they should be more physically active what they need is support to enable yeah. them to do that um, and so that's what we need we need policies which make it easier to walk and cycle for example on the physical activity side and when it comes to food we need policies which mean we're not being actively encouraged to eat the wrong things and instead that we're actively encouraged to eat the healthier things so i don't think it's so much about advice i think it's about support and there's only so much, there's only a small part of that which actually comes down to the health service per se but where the health service absolutely um, can do something is in providing help for people specifically um, uh, who would benefit from losing weight um, we have a couple of questions, slightly more specific questions, and one is around the Eat Well Guide. And I wonder if you might just mention what or, or describe what that is. And the question is, um, would it be worthwhile uh, promulgating that more? And there's also a question which is quoting, and I think it's originally from Michael Pollan. This is from Paul Shotton, um, that a simple good advice is eat a wide variety of foods, not too much, mostly vegetables. Does that sort of, so, well, so, so, uh, so that is a good dictum. And what about, would you just say what the Eat Well Guide is and say whether you... So the Eat Well Guide is, is the sort of UK, um, I guess, health promotion tool, which is designed to bring together a whole mass of information about 
about the kinds of foods that constitute a healthy diet. And so it's often displayed as a kind of a, a plate, a circle at least, of which about half is covered with fruit and veg. And then there's a small segment for those sort of protein rich foods, some for carbohydrates uh, and a little bit for, for fats. So, you know, again, this, this keeps revolving back to advice. I, I personally, I just don't think the problem is that people don't know what to do. I think what we need more of is support and practical tools which enable people to do it. And mostly that's not going to be at an individual level. You know, to come back to the point you made earlier, people are just on automatic pilot when they come to eating. Um, and, and so we need to just change the default so that you're much more likely to end up with a healthy diet. We, we've all got such busy, complicated lives. We have not got the brain space to devote to every micro decision about every single thing we put into our mouths. We're, we're just doing it on, on remote. Um, and that, that's why the environment really matters. Just on that last point, the, the sort of bandwidth one has, um, I've read arguments that people who have very stressful lives because they might be ill, because they might be on very low incomes, then they have even less time than the rest of us to make considered decisions. Do, do you think that is an explanation why? why... Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I think there's a growing evidence base around that. Um, and, you know, you see it in experience when people are, are highly stressed for, for, for whatever reason, actually, they tend to make poorer food choices. Um, and it's almost like your mental, the mental effort it takes, the cognitive effort is, is just too great. So, you know, I absolutely identify it in myself. So, if I've, you know, coming in those days when I used to go to London on the train, um, and I managed, you know, at the end of a long day, you just missed the train and you think, oh, God, I wait half an hour. Oh. And those are the moments I am most likely to buy a bar of chocolate because, you know, I think, oh, so what? You know, in the grand scheme, oh, so what? I haven't got the energy, the mental energy to sort of say, you know, this is not such a great idea. Susan so, um, I've heard you use the phrase that occasionally you have a, what is it, an unexpected chocolate moment? Or what, what, is, the, what is the phrase you use? unexpected chocolate eating incident because it's the point where actually you know sometimes I really feel like a piece of chocolate but actually I don't eat chocolate because there actually isn't any around and I'm not going to go off in search of it so that moment kind of passes but when two things coincide which is that I just really want to eat this or I haven't got the you know I'm not able to resist it and it's available then suddenly that's yeah. where poor food choices happen you know that's a very anecdotal account but the point is that if you are leading a complicated stress life when your your mental resource is devoted on things which are perhaps acutely more significant right now then it's much harder to um, worry about food and this comes back to eating healthily should not be this hard but at the minute it is the default is you end up with an unhealthy diet because mostly things that are available and convenient and cheap are often the less healthy things. And until we change that around, until the healthier becomes the easy option, the default option, then healthy eating will remain too hard. And that is, you know, one of the reasons why we have such marked inequalities in food is, I think, because um, the healthy choice is just not the easy choice. You have to have an awful lot of, 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 of you know, innate resources to be able to eat well.
Susan, I, I want to ask you a question and several people have asked this in different ways. What I suspect may be the, the, the sort of single hardest bit of your job as someone who's uh, campaigning to try and help people lose weight. And that is how do you get a supportive me message across without in any sense, and there's a phrase fat shaming, in any sense sort of lowering the status or the respect given to people who are currently overweight. And of course, without um, risking um, some of the diseases that we see associated with uh, diets such as anorexia and, and, and bulimia. And it must be a, a really quite difficult path to tread to get over the positive messages, but to avoid the negatives. It's incredibly difficult. And it's, and it's difficult because as a society, uh, we treat people who are overweight really badly. I mean, the discrimination and the stigma in society, particularly for people who are very overweight, is, is marked and it's acute. And, you know, it, it's completely unacceptable. But it continues day in, day out. And people who are very overweight are, of course, and rightly, extremely sensitive to that. Um, so, but, but at the same time, we have, you know, we know that there are effective interventions. We know there are treatments and we need to find ways to offer those in a supportive context. And I think that's the important thing. And I think what our research and, and others have shown is that managing your weight is really hard. You know, in the world we live in, frankly, I'm amazed that more people aren't overweight. And so what people need is they need more help. They need more support. They don't need to be you know, made to feel bad about this. They actually need and deserve more help and more support. And the fact, uh, you know, the world is set against them. And, and so I, I think that's an important part of it is recognizing that it's difficult, recognizing that there's a very powerful biological susceptibility to weight gain. You know, genes do matter. They make being overweight inevitable, but they make it harder for some people to manage their weight than for others. And, and actually people need, need extra help. So I think it's, it's partly that framing. Um, it's also the language we use. Um, and, you know, you know it's, it's, it's so embedded, this incredibly stigmatizing language that, that we so often hear used um, in, in relation to uh, overweight. Um, that, that's got to change. So big issues there. And then on the other hand, as you say, there is this concern that in uh, talking more about overweight, in offering treatments uh, for obesity, in encouraging people to you know, look at calorie labels or to, or to watch what they eat. There's a worry that we might be um, uh, fostering eating disorders. Now, I don't think there's any good evidence of that, um, but nonetheless, it's an absolutely legitimate um, concern. Um, but we've got to ensure that, that these offer of treatment is targeted correctly and it's targeted at people who need that help. Um, and secondly, on the more prevention side, I think it's important to remember we're not but by by putting the emphasis on changing the environment so that the whole environment offers healthier foods you are actually um moving away from this narrative that individuals should should be um uh, doing specific things themselves that actually we just create an environment which offers healthy food and where people get have a healthy diet by default and i think that helps to remove it from this sense of personal responsibility or personal mm -hmm. um, 
you know, failure if, if it doesn't work out. Actually, um, we need to think about the wider environment. Sorry, that was sort, sort of a muddled answer, but this is no, no, no. a difficult, such a complicated area. But I think that we are beginning to make progress. And um, Charlotte Albury and our team has produced a fantastic resource called Language Matters. Um, with one of the uh, with Obesity UK, which is a a, a group uh, of, uh, of people living with obesity, in order to try to um, help and train uh, uh, particularly health professionals but others about how we can um, really step away from some of the some of the um, uh, discriminatory language that that often often creeps in. So I'm afraid this is going to be the uh, last question, and it's the one with most votes at the moment by Solange Parra. And it's, uh, should we decrease our consumption of uh, animal sourced food? Um, and Susan, I'm going to ask a specific question on that because there are environmental reasons why one might want to do that. Um, but when it comes, so, so if one thinks of the many arguments for or against eating animal food, if we focus in on obesity, then is there an obesity argument that 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 bears on this issue? Well, there probably is. Um, certainly, I think there's now, as, as you say, animal source food associated with huge environmental harms. Um, so good reason to reduce. On health, we know that there's an increased risk, uh, certainly of colorectal cancer. There's an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, we, uh, Tim Key and colleagues in Oxford, uh, looked at the relationship with diabetes. And, and at first sight, it looked like there was a strong link, but then actually we realized that was an almost entirely mediated through overweight. And so um, that was some insight into the fact that, that high, particularly high meat diets are associated with an increased risk of being overweight. And we're now beginning to see one or two intervention studies where people reduce their meat intake. And what we see is they tend to lose a little bit of weight. Um, so I think that they're probably, you know, it, it, it's part of the story, it's, but it's much more about the dietary, the whole dietary pattern. It's not that meat is particularly calorific, but it's about the type of dietary pattern that people who consume a lot of meat have, um, which, which does seem to be associated with an increased risk of obesity. And, and Susan, uh, uh, literally just a sentence response. Are, are you optimistic that the uh, momentum in obesity policy that we have seen build up over the last six months will be maintained when hopefully we come out of the pandemic next year? I, oh gosh, I, I hope so. I, I, I am hopeful. I really do think that the government has, has woken up to this and is on the case. And the obesity plan was very well received and people, you know, the public largely have welcomed that some of the, the even more restrictive measures on things like advertising. And I think that's encouraged them to continue. So I am hopeful. But of course, we are going to be facing such difficult times as we come out of the pandemic. There'll be so many competing priorities and trying to remind people that obesity will be a health concern long after COVID um, is going to be tremendously important to make sure it stays high on the agenda. Because, you know, this has been um, decades in the making and uh, it's not going to be solved uh, yeah. next. We'll have a vaccine before we, for COVID before we solve obesity. So we have to stop there. Uh, just before thanking Susan, I'd like to say two things. First of all, many thanks for everyone who has asked questions and voted. And I, I'm sorry I've only been able to get to uh, the top seven or eight. 
Um, next week, we have what will be a really fascinating talk. So Nigel Shadbolt will be in conversation with Tim Berners-Lee. And the title of their conversation is The Web, the Internet and Data During the Pandemic, Lessons Learned to New Directions. And that's going to be really fascinating. Uh, and let me finish. Um, Susan, as always, you have this just fabulous ability to talk so clearly and cogently about as complex an issue as obesity. I really am grateful for the conversation. I've learned a lot and I'm sure everyone listening has. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks. Good night.